Welcome to episode number 28 of the Jackson Hole Connection. My name is Stephan Abrams, and I am your host and guide today. Jackson Hole touches each person who passes through her arches in their own way. My goal with the Jackson Hole Connection is to speak to as many of these fascinating and wildly interesting folks as possible. Today, my guest is the high-energy, strong-minded, funny, and creative Mary Grossman. Mary's first trip to Jackson Hole was in 1963, while still in her mom's belly. Since her first trip to Jackson Hole, Mary has made many accomplishments in her life, all through hard work, willing to take risks, and being relentless with her work ethic. Mary will share with us her journey to being a successful entrepreneur, business leader, mom, and wife. She has three guiding philosophies which anyone can use to be successful in business. Sit back, relax, grab a cold beverage, and enjoy the show. And before we begin, I have a quick word from one of my sponsors. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Mary, thank you for coming over to the office today and to be a guest here on the Jackson Hole Connection. Thanks, Stefan. <laughs> Thanks for having me on this like horrible day of snow. Oh, come on. It's All not right. that horrible. We love snow out here in the mountains. We've only had maybe 600 inches this year. <laughs> I don't know. That's a drastic. I think on the fairgrounds, the pile of snow is almost three stories high, maybe. It's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, Mary, you've been here in Jackson Hole for quite some time. Give everybody a little quick snippet background of how you landed here in Jackson Hole. Well, my family had been coming for years since I was little. Uh, in fact, there's a photo of my mom who was pregnant with me at the time in 1963 standing on the top of Snow King. And if you look behind her in this photograph, you could see complete open space in East Jackson. It just used to be the Charles M. Nelson Ranch and or subdivision and there was only one house out there and that's the house I live in now no kidding yeah it's behind her in the photograph and so each summer we would come and camp my dad loved it he had come as a teenager and a young adult in the 50s and so we carried on the tradition and in 1984 I worked at the lodge in the while well, I was in college Jackson Lake Lodge in 1986 I was in the music festival as a student that back then they had a student program. And then 87, I moved out here day after graduation with my sister. And I've been here ever since. You played in the music festival. What instrument do you play? Uh, that w- I was a composer. Back then they had a composition program for six composers. And uh, I, had, I, I was living in Boston at the time and I sent some scores in and I got chosen. So it was very, it was serendipitous that it was in Jackson Hole, Grand Teton Music Festival. So. And are you still a composer? No, I after I had my first after Esther, my first child, I wrote one more piece and I haven't really looked back. So no, sadly. So moved out here in 1987, but your first trip was 1963 in your mom's belly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you met your husband, love of your life. You have two children. Yeah, we met in the Jackson Hole Corral. I was a piano player and he was a tenor in the back row. Okay. And your kids are musicians? 
Esther's a really great singer, but I don't think music is her uh, career. Isaac, uh, my 18-year-old who is going to graduate from high school soon, is a great musician. He's terrific. It's better than both of us. Maybe Isaac can do some uh, intro music for us and outro music. Yeah. I have my brother's stepson, Luke Taylor, doing the music right now. So maybe, oh, maybe Isaac wants to get Isaac has on a that. great radio show on Saturday mornings you should listen to on K-Hole. It's K-Hole Radio. You, everybody can check out Isaac Grossman. 9 to what, 11. 9 to 11. Saturday okay, mornings, yeah. cool. And during your stint here in Jackson, you've been a very involved community member. And you've had mm-hmm. some businesses mm-hmm. here in town. So what did you start doing when you first lived in Jackson? When you came here in 1987, you mm-hmm. said that you started at the lodge, but then you had to come back down here. You had to live in the town. Yeah, I moved out with my sister after graduating from high, from uh, college. And I worked at the village. I worked at the inn, in ja- inn at Jackson Hole for Jerry Johnson, who was a young man. I was 19, 20, 21, 21, worked at the front desk. I worked at a, for Bill Utzinger at Gallery of the West at some point right after that, um, the 80s. So I worked on the town square. I wasn't doing much, but I was composing. And I did get a grant, actually, from the Wyoming Arts Council in the late 80s to compose a song cycle based on some letters of a woman pioneer. So I was working um, on my own music and work making money at other jobs. Then I went to graduate school in 1989 in, at the University of Utah. What degree did you earn? I'm four credits short of composition, master's in theory and composition. And that's kind of where my publishing world um, begins And it, it there. And How so, did you get into the publishing business from there? <laughs> Through horses. So I was in graduate school, and I was also, but down there I was working in two barns, horse barns. One was a competitive dressage barn, and the other one was a, a writing program for handicapped kids, and I was teaching there. And I dropped out of graduate school with four credits to go to just ride horses because I was just really into it. And so when I came back to Jackson Hole with my grand piano, my two cats, and my horse, now I have a horse, I wanted to start, <laughs> I wanted to start a newsletter um, because back in the in the early 90s, Jackson Hole was an incredible world-class equestrian uh, venue, and we had a three-day event venue. We don't anymore. And so I wanted to start this newsletter connecting the, the horse community, both Western and English, together. I thought it'd be fun. There's so many of us, we, you know, we could sell things in a newsletter. And so I went to the Jackson Hole News, which was separate from the Jackson Hole Guide at the time, and John Wright, who I, um, I owe my entire publishing career to him, who now has a graphic design and PR firm here. So John was working the press. He was a pressman. And I said, hey, I want to do this newsletter for the horse world and the horse community here in Jackson. And he said, hey, why don't you make it a newspaper? Hmm. And the rest is history. So I came out with Valley Horse Journal, which was a horse magazine and I published that for five years, and and I distributed it across the country, and it won awards, and it, and that's where I learned everything about publishing on my own, and with the help of John Wright, learned to sell ads. I became a graphic designer from my friend Rita, who was my roommate here. She was a graphic designer. I learned to work with creative teams. I learned to shipping and distribution and bookkeeping and writing. I learned to write stories, and um, it was and it, I loved it. I wow, loved it. magnificent. 
So that's how I started uh, publishing. And then I, I got a job at the Art Association and worked for Karen Stewart there. Uh-huh. And she let me have a lot of freedom there. And so I got to publish a couple magazines there. One was their Splash magazine, which was around here for a while. That was great. I, got, I learned more about publishing and graphic design and, and um, working with writers and photographers and artists. So I'm just putzing away at the Art Association doing their school schedule and art programs and education programs. And then one morning, and I'll tell you the morning, it was November 22nd, 2002. My husband comes out of the bathroom, because if anyone knows Judd, he's bald and shaves his head. And he came out of the bathroom with shaving cream all over his head and said, hey, Tom Nineman just said the Jackson Hole News and the Jackson Hole Guide are going to merge. Here's your chance. And so that was 2002. And he gave me a check for $5,000 to start a newspaper. And so December 18th, we came out with our first issue. And you came out with your first issue of The Planet. Yeah, it was pretty epic. It was a big deal. What did you base that newspaper on? How did you decide what the structure of that paper would be? Well, that's good. You know, had I actually sort of sat down and thought about a business plan and a mission and a vision, I would have never done it. I would have, I, honest, it was, it would have been too much work, but I really felt like, and so did my husband, that a one newspaper town was very, was bad news and we needed to do something. So it was, it was more of a, an activist. It was a, a I was responding to a, something that was needed in our community. And I think that's a great idea. And that's a great way to start a business is to meet a need, but I didn't have a lot of time and it needed to happen right away because we needed to capitalize on some energy, both negative and positive, from the merger. The negative energy was that advertisers were nervous because they knew that of one newspaper town, the rates were going to be, you know, they're going to monopolize advertising rates. And for opinion, I mean, if you only have one newspaper, you don't have a choice. It's just choice. We need to, you know, you always need a choice. Mm-hmm. So I felt like we needed to capitalize on the angry advertisers and the angry readers and come out right away and fill that void. And we did. And I captured a lot of the, um, I got Richard Anderson. Richard Anderson was our first editor and it was awesome. He was brilliant. Worked just unbelievable writer and his capacity to, to write a lot is pretty stunning. So I was taking my $5,000 check to the bank on a day just like today. It was just a horrible sleet storm. And as I was going to the bank, I was passing Pearl Street Bagels, and Rich Anderson walked out in front of my car. And I rolled down the window. I said, hey, do you want to be an editor of a newspaper? And he just sort of looked and went, shrugged, and said, sure, (laughs) and walked away. And anyway, so, and then I picked up Ed Bushnell and Melissa Davidson and some other people who um, didn't make it through the merger, and we came out 18 days later. And we worked with Cynthia Heifer, her basement. She was a graphic designer. She let us hang out in her basement. It was pretty horrible. I mean, it was so much hard work. I think about it still today and get sort of nauseated. Nobody starts a newspaper. That's what I learned. No, you don't do that. No, you, not many people do, especially you, at, in this century 
<laughs> you buy, you know, you buy, you buy one, you buy failing ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you started one and, and so I had to go through all the mistakes. I had to make every mistake. That's the best way to learn though. Sometimes yeah, it took 10 you learn years. by failure. Uh, yeah. Woo-hoo. <laughs> sometimes they can be costly. Sometimes they're not, but it's it, as long as you learn from it, that's the most critical part about it. So um, I'm not afraid to make mistakes and I uh, feel like that's one of my few talents. But it's really, it was hard on the staff. It was hard on everyone to try to come out in, you know, three weeks, three and a half weeks, and then spend just years, make just the, you know, some of the mistakes were hilarious, typos, you know, they they go legendary typos. But we also got sued. Thankfully, we had libel insurance. We were smart enough to have that because I know a lot of publications that don't even think of that, you know, when they try to start a blog or. And why did somebody sue you? That was early on. Um, it was a construction company in town, and it was 2005. It was right off, right in our first year and a half. Um, we wrote a story about a construction company that was embezzling money, and they, Ed Bushnell and the Planet, he felt like, even though the News and Guide had written the same story, and even though the documents and all the the, the reporting we were working from was in was public, he decided that our paper had cost him some jobs, millions and millions of dollars worth of jobs. Oh. I think he thought that we were vulnerable and didn't have insurance. Anyway, we uh, fought back and we won. It took two and a half years and cost you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But that was really a great learning experience and that's where I really got um, jazzed about free speech mm-hmm. and how important it was. and. Um, I think Ed Bushnell did as well. He went off to become a lawyer after that. Yeah, <laughs> the lawyer Ed Bushnell. Yeah, yeah. We're lucky to see him wear a belt sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's Ed, funny. Ed. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned free speech, and I think even in today's world, we take for granted at times the value of free speech. We might not agree with what's being spoken, but people still have the right to have free speech. And right. for me, my word is so important to me. So I'm not going to say something that's going to perjure or be untruthful because I want somebody to recognize that. Now, does everybody operate that way? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's their choice. Well, I look back at our papers from the you know first 10 years, and it's just almost brings tears to my eyes how transparent we were as writers. Um, we had conservatives and liberals, had you know super left-wing editors and super right-wing opinion and super left-wing opinion. Nobody was afraid to say how they to talk about their politics. It was so unabashedly bold. That could not exist today. I mean, if you came out with a conservative opinion i mean you'd be vaporized immediately now and everyone respected each other's political opinions no one thought less of you because you were had this kind of political perspective and that's completely gone now do you think that's gone. gone across all age segments of our society or is there a specific or several different age sectors where they're not able to handle well, definitely. the opposing view. I mean, definitely as we get younger, though I have to tell you, I think I think my, my son is 18. He's sort of the cutoff of this next, he's like the oldest cohort of this next generation. I don't know, it's the I generation or whatever it is. 
but they seem to be responding to this, uh, the millennials and the Z generation that have become very authoritarian and, and um, anti-free speech. And those are those we you read about that all the time on college campuses, shutting down speakers and deplatforming people. And but I think I have faith that maybe this next generation that's coming up does is is not sympathetic to that uh, that strategy. I I don't want I want you know free speech for me, but not for thee. I'll make sure my boys are going to listen to all aspects. It's really important. Yeah. I think that was a great thing about their my kids having parents that owned a newspaper. That I mean, we we went to the mat every single day for mm -hmm. opinions that we didn't agree with and i thought um i thought that was something i was that was special yeah it was important but it just doesn't happen anymore if you have the wrong opinion you need to be shut down that's what that's how it is now well i hope that all the listeners can appreciate an opposing opinion and help other people that they're in their circles um, listen to an opposing opinion and value that people have different viewpoints and when we can value other people's viewpoints we can grow as humans yeah we can grow not as people. demonize i mean right now yeah. it's just the reaction is to immediately assume that person's evil mm -hmm. because of this black and white you know this this black and white culture we have right now that there's good versus evil end of story end of story full stop mm -hmm. and there's no nuance no gray area no discussion if you have a different opinion, you are evil. And that is the dangerous part. Yes. Well, transitioning away from the, the paper, I want to move back to what drove you to come out here in the 80s, but also your, your desire and your drive. You left graduate school with four hours <laughs> left to finish. And then drive, you, an idiot. you move back to Jackson Hole from, from Utah with a grand piano. Who travels with a grand piano and a horse? And two cats. And two cats, yes. So what is the thing inside of you that keeps driving you to do new and exciting things? Yeah, I'm a kind of a chronic change person. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. You know, I think there's three things about successful business owners, and I'm not really saying that I'm a successful business owner. I, I think I have one of the traits of the things I like about successful business owners, and one of those, um, one of those traits is the ability to take on a lot of work and to be able to dig down deep in this place. And I know like competitive athletes know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, there's just, there's a deep down place that where you can take on massive amounts of work and not freak out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't get that. They think they, oh, I'm so work, I'm so busy all the time. But it's like, you have no idea what focus <laughs> and hard work is. You have no idea. Most people don't have any idea. And I think I'm good at that. And I'm also good at not working. Do you like, like now. one? Do you, do, you, do you like, no, 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 you work. You have a job. I, and you work very hard. I have a high capacity of doing, for doing lots of work. Yes, you do. And do you like one more than the other? What, not working or working? Yeah. Um, that's a tough call. I'm not a workaholic. I'm sort of a workaholic stuck in a slacker body. So when you're in the thick of it, just taking on a lot of work, what do you do to stay fresh, to recharge yourself? Because you're in the thick of it. And even everybody needs a recharge. So you got to recharge yourself at different periods during the time. 
Or how do you keep yourself energized during all of that work? I don't freak out. I mean, I think that's a, I mean, I might have a, there might be a problem. I don't, I don't panic. Mm-hmm. I don't panic with a lot of um, works. I mean, I sort of internally panic sometimes, but I think a lot of people throw, um, they sabotage themselves. And this is the step where they start sabotaging themselves when the workload starts coming down the pipeline. I don't feel like I need to, I don't have a lot of self-care. I mean, I don't need it, I guess. Have you ever heard of the imposter syndrome? No, what's that? Uh, It's sabotaging yourself. It's saying, oh my gosh, I have all this work to do. I can't do it. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to do this. So getting over that um, that little inner voice saying that you can't do it. You can't do it. And it's a place, it's like digging down. I le- actually learned this, learned how to focus by riding horses. It was my first dressage competition. And I was old. I was like, and it wasn't even through music. I was a performer. I mean, I played piano in con- you know, concert um, situations. And it was not even that but it was when I had my horse and I went into a dressage competition you go by yourself in front of a judge and it was my first one and that was the time I realized there's this different place inside you where you can get this super hyper focus and energy that you don't have on a you don't use very often. How does that come out in dressage? Well, first you're riding a horse it's you know you're on a dane you know you're it's just not you it's you and another animal and a very so large, large, strong, the animal that's heavy. dangerous, and mm-hmm. it. I just had to focus to a point that some and focus that I've never done before, and so I just learned to tap into that feeling, and then once you get that feeling, you can tap into it all the time, and it's really hard to articulate, but you probably know what it is. I mean, it's just um, you have to get in your zone. It's a zone. It's a mm-hmm. zone, and you don't aren't required to go in there very often, mm-hmm. unless you start a business. And I think starting the business is one of those places where you have to focus. There's a book on the desk called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. Am I looking at it? And yeah. yes. Oh, yep, there it is. And it talks about the imposter syndrome, but also the zone of genius. So your zone where you do your best work and understanding what that zone is. And when you understand it, that's when you're going to just rise mm-hmm. to the cream of the top. It's for me, it's a feeling. That's all I can say. It's like this feeling inside. And then you only tap into it when you need it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so once you tap in it, it's just like you're Superman. And so that's why I'm saying I don't need to energize or do all that. I don't need to go take a massage or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, I watch a lot of Netflix. Now that you're not working. So so I have to talk about sabotage. (laughs) You know, after I sold the paper... I actually went through about three years of a real crisis. Not, I mean, it was a very small crisis, but it was like really fear, fear, a fear of failure. I mean, I've never had a fear, fear of failure. And all of a sudden here, I, did, I couldn't define myself. I had nothing to define myself. But that's the imposter syndrome coming back in. Yeah. Because you did run a successful business and you, you sold it, mm-hmm. but you just didn't find your next step in life. It took a little bit of time to find that. Mm-hmm. And that imposter syndrome can start to kick in. Mm-hmm. But even when you weren't working, you were still involved in the community. Yeah, I was always involved in the Jewish community. And, you know, I'm not a super soccer mom or anything like that. So I didn't have I didn't have to worry about that, like traveling with my kids or this or that. You know, we were pretty low key parents that way. Our kids sort of had to come along with us, <laughs> pick up their toys and move uh, move around with us. But I think it was 
you know, it was an interesting childhood for them, I hope. For people that are listening, what you said, you have the ability to take on a lot of work. You said there's three things. You gave us one. What are the other two? Oh, I was thinking about how right now there's sort of this disdain and contempt for rich people, and it's bugging me. It's bugging. I hear it a lot in young people. You know, they want to, like, this revenge against rich people people and successful people and I'm thinking well geez you know you guys should probably sit down and talk to some of these rich and successful people because they they built their success well it's automatically assumed they built their success because they were corrupt or they built their success on the backs of somebody else but it's not true every single successful person I know are just brilliant you know brilliant at these three things and one was this ability to tap in to hard work Mm -hmm. and to understand what hard work is it's it's on it they're off the radar. their idea of hard work is off the radar for most people and they can do it swiftly and easily they can they can work and this is the one thing that i learned i'm sure judd helped me learn it after 14 years of having the paper is to practice austerity when times are good and really successful people it's a habit it's literally it's a habit you have to say okay i have this windfall i'm getting money you want to spend it. That's, you know, that's intuitive. But it should be, the habit should be, okay, I'm getting all this money. I'm going to ratchet down even more. I'm going to save even more. I'm going to be practice austerity now while I'm rich, while there's money. Because we didn't when the planet was right off the bat. You know, it was just, you know, it was very successful right away. But we just spent it all, spent it all. I mean, it's like you get a check from your grandma for 200 bucks. What are you going to do? Get a, Let's you go know, shopping. Go pedicure. <laughs> Well, the austerity part of it uh, in today's world, it's so easy. It's that feeling of just clicking Amazon Prime and you get it in two days. And in some cities, you get it the next day. And and you're so right. There is a lot of information out there about the super wealthy, how they get there. They're because they're, I don't want to say cheap, but they know how to save money and they could, they're, it's a habit. It's become a habit. Well, it's not just, it, it is a habit. They do create the habit and it is saving money. But as income increases, they mm-hmm. keep their lifestyle expenses the same. And so the lifestyle expenses are not going up in proportionate to, to what their income is. Mm-hmm. So if you look at somebody who's super uber wealthy, Warren Buffett, he lives in the same home that he started off when he and his wife mm-hmm. got married. He hasn't changed. He didn't have to go buy, feel that he needed to go buy three multi-million dollar homes Mm -hmm. around the country, around the world. Mm -hmm. That's what loses it right there. Mm -hmm. And there's other wealthy people that have done that. Right, especially around here. I Mm -hmm. mean, well, for I see young business owners here, and when you see the Audi and the Mercedes show up outside the business, to me, that's a warning. That's Mm -hmm. a warning sign. You know, that's not good. It might be, it might last for a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. And that little bit of time could be five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. But for the future, when they're in the retirement age. I mean, you look at billionaires in this town, they're Mm -hmm. driving the same old crappy suburban, early 90s model suburban. Mm -hmm. And you see them walking around town and and they they look like anybody else. Mm -hmm. Being counter, you know, practicing this counterintuitive skill of ratcheting down when things are good saving more, cutting more, slashing more when the money's coming in because it doesn't come in all the time. So we survived the economic crash barely. We almost had to go out of business. We almost had to walk away from this because our revenues went from 
from t literally to four, you know, down to forty percent in a few months. And that's and, tough to to absorb. I mean, it just, and so we had a um, Roger Plathow, the publisher mm -hmm. of the Idaho Post Register, was kind enough to mentor us through two years. I mean, it was like getting an MBA at Harvard. Two years of just line by line ratcheting down, even like twenty-five cents a week pencils. They're gone. They're twenty-five cents a week. Go to the, your bank and get pens. It just, I mean, <laughs> that's how little, you know, that's how small these line items were that we were cutting in half. And um, through his help and through my husband's meticulous, he's, you know, my husband's the real, he's very good at practicing austerity when times are good. He's like an Olympic athlete in that. <laughs> it, was, it was me trying to balance the creative content of the paper versus this extreme austerity. But it got us to a point where we were actually survived this horrible economic crash. And so the, oh, and then there's a third thing. The third thing is they're not afraid of failure. They invite it, they love it. Failure is awesome. And it's, and so I think a lot of people are very self-conscious. I know people who are very self-conscious about what other people think of them. And if they fail, that is the worst thing in the world. I love that you say not afraid of failure because at the liquor store, we have a one page strategic plan. And one of our core values is it's okay to fail. And I think what that does is it allows people to step out of their comfort zone and challenge themselves to grow and develop and realize that if I fail, I'm going to learn something new. Now, I don't want to purposely fail yeah. if I can avoid it, but it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It will happen. And by being afraid of it, nothing will happen. Nothing happens. You, know? mm -hmm. you always want something to happen to your business. But if you don't take any, I mean, we were constantly starting new papers, new ventures, new projects, and they fail. We just toss them out the window and, and say la vie, good riddance, and never think of them again. But some people get really upset. Yeah, they, they don't like the change. You, you have to appreciate change because mm -hmm. every business develops into something different. Even if you look at some very time timeless businesses that are out there like IBM they've been around for quite some time at this point mm -hmm. but they have changed in how they operate mm -hmm. but then you look at Kodak they didn't change mm -hmm. how they operate they went, out of business. they went out of business you look at Woolworth they were one of the largest retailers in the country they went out of business they didn't change their model mm -hmm. look at AMP AMP still exists on some <laughs> way some levels but AMP was one of the was probably the first grocer to do their own private labeling. The, their, oh, yeah. their first retailer to do their own private labeling. But now they're kind of non-existent. Mm -hmm. Kroger and Walmart have passed them up. So, and it's just, don't be self, don't care, don't worry about what people think. So, I mean, owning a newspaper is a great, hmm. <laughs> it's great for that because um, you're on you're on all the time. You're in, in everyone's crosshairs. People love to hate you. So you get used to it. I think with don't worry about what other people think, you have to do what guides you. Oh, yeah. That could lead to your destruction mm -hmm. is worrying about sure. what people think. And people are always going to give you input, whether it's positive criticism or negative criticism. Criticism doesn't always mean negative, but they're going to give you some yeah. some feedback. And you, as the business owner, have to determine, is that feedback follow your core values mm -hmm. and what you're going for towards mm -hmm. for your business? And if it does, great. Can you put that into, how can you put it into play? Let, let me really think about that. But if not, it's like, eh, somebody's just 
There's a lot of jerks out there. There's a ton of jerks. <laughs> well, and there's a lot of jerks that don't like business owners. I mean, they're jealous. They're jealous and they want to hurt your business and they want to hurt you. And So you brought up a good point. In today's society, there are people who feel that success or money is bad. Yeah, it's all of a sudden, like you're, you know. Is, is Do you feel that's on a national, a global level? Where's that coming from? Well, it's def- I think this is my opinion. Anyone can challenge me, of course, on this. But I do think it's coming from political. It's political ideology. And it's coming from that this, um, this sort of class warfare ideology that rich people need to be clamped down on. We need to we want to ban billionaires now, which, you know, I understand. I understand the intent. So, you know, the intent is honest and um, earnest. But it's dangerous to try to demonize people because of their success. I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, sure, there's a small percentage of people who are super rich and successful that have gotten there because of bad things. But most people are really honest and they're really doing something they love and they work really hard at it. Yeah. I think that what happens is the people who do bad get more recognition or they have a louder they're given a louder voice at times on different platforms. So you don't hear about all the good. Well, I think we have we do have a problem with you know, sort of economic disparity in this country and so the first inkling for some people is to punish the rich people to somehow make them the bad guy in this and I think that might stifle research and development, stifles um, creative enterprise, free enterprise. I mean, our country is just so incredible with creative free enterprise. We need to be fostering that, not, you know, not you know, wrecking it and corroding it. Yes, and that's one of the beautiful things about our country is we have the ability to have free enterprise, unlike other countries. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and you can be anything you want here. Mm-hmm. And it's really, as I travel around the world, I go to the Middle East a little bit, and I have um, my daughters in Europe. I see how challenging it is to be an entrepreneur in these countries. And it's it, virtually, you're, it's impossible. It's very hard. I look forward rewarded. to hearing more about that from Esther. Yeah. I'll have to have Esther here. Um, okay, Esther, do you hear that? Yeah. You're next. Yes, Esther, <laughs> I'm coming for you. <laughs> That's my daughter. <laughs> well, I appreciate your views and your perspective. And and I also really respect what you have done as a business person and an entrepreneur and how driven you are to go to the next thing and not just get into your to a rut of oh well this is comfortable and easy so I'm going to keep doing it. You you inspire me with your energy and all of your ideas what you keep doing. So keep on doing it and Thank keep you. inspiring. Yeah, I'm not I'm not very comfortable in the comfort zone for some reason. I like it when uh, things are all up in the air. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what Lewis said when he had to read something with a pair of glasses that weren't working. Well, what does it look like, Lewis? It looks just, he says it's just all <laughs> Okay, well we know those glasses don't work. <laughs> so, Mary if people want to reach out to you and connect with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Through my email. It's my full name, Mary Alice Grossman at gmail.com. Well, thank you for coming, Mary. Thanks, Stefan. And taking the time to do this. It's been awesome. Thanks.
You're welcome. We'll see you soon. Bye. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at the jacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. A special shout out to my friend Luke Taylor for producing and providing the tunes for this podcast. Luke, you help bring it all together. Y'all come back again. You hear?